So we're back in Bristol. I'm on the fifth floor of the Dorothy Hodgkin building where I work and I've set up the studio with all the equipment that Kidney Research UK have provided us and we're ready to go. It's the same setup that I had for the podcast with Rachel Lennon and the episode with uh, Richard and Will Harrington down at Oxford. So we've got the usual meters and meters of cables on the table. Looks a mess, hopefully sounds great. What's really cool about today's episode is we're back with Caroline. So, because I'm interviewing a patient, we need the clinical expertise of the consultant paediatric nephrologist, Dr. Caroline Platt, so she'll be here. It's the first time that Caroline's used this equipment. So, I haven't done a podcast with Caroline since our first interview set with Cade that we did in the recording studios at the Victoria Rooms here in Bristol. But this might feel a little bit more natural. This is a bit more towards what I wanted. So we've got the setup here. We've just got a desk. We've got the equipment out. But it will be that we're just wearing headphones, which admittedly is unnatural, maybe for some. um, And we'll just be holding microphones. We'd just like to make it clear that the details of the care Holly received might be different to the care you're potentially receiving yourself at the moment or that loved ones have received. and that could be for a myriad of reasons, and we're just we're more interested here in her personal experience rather than the medical side of the specific drugs she received and when. You are a superstar guest because you've got you've got like a foot in every sort of camp <laughs> that we want to touch on. I can't think of anything offhand that I'm not willing to discuss. Okay. Um, that in sounds terms like a challenge. Of- well, I did a presentation yesterday and I said I've never yet been asked a question that's offended me. That's not a challenge. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I never want to laugh. Okay then. Well, <coughs> thanks for coming all the way down to mm-hmm. Bristol. It's really good of you and it's really helpful for us. You're a great you're gonna be a great guest. So could you just introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Holly Loughton. I am a transplant patient. I currently live in Manchester. And I am involved in, I think, a bit of everything. <laughs> mm, no, I think you are. <laughs> I believe you were in your 20s, were you, when you first started I to was, notice things? I was first diagnosed when I was 24, kind of pretty much out of the blue. Initially, I thought, because I was teaching in what's equivalent reception class at the time, I thought I had just picked up a bug from one of my students, felt a bit not so great went off to my GP, and long story short, I discovered after bouncing around virtually every department of the hospital that I have FSGS. Right. Prior to that, didn't really know what FSGS was, didn't know a lot about kidney disease at all. So to go from being completely healthy, never really having spent any time in hospital, to being landed with this you know, lifelong chronic illness was a shock to the system, to say the least. And how long did that sort of take from being at the GP to then sort of getting a diagnosis? I would say the best part of a year. Right. Just because I, I'm adopted, so I don't have any biological history of kidney disease of anything really. So there was nothing to kind of base it upon mm. to say, oh, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Mm. What, do, uh, what do you think, Caroline, about the, at that age of presentation? Because to my mind, FSGS is either genetic and you're sort of what, two or three years old. Or you can get it because of circulating factor. Yeah, I mean, you know, FSGS is, as we've talked about before in this in this kind of series, is just a way of describing a finding or, or that you you get from taking a sample of kidney. So it doesn't really define what the etiology of the disease is. FSGS can be um, secondary to a number of insults that the kidney um, 
as exposed to. Uh, so I think just knowing the histology or the pattern that you see on biopsy doesn't really answer that many questions. Yes, primary FSGS is something that we, we tend to see presenting in childhood and often has a genetic etiology. Um, but it would be difficult to understand where that disease in you came from without additional information. Right, really. yeah. Yeah, you're just sort of looking at the yeah. uh, how the disease actually looks yeah. in the tissue. Yeah, and yeah. then you can use that to prognosticate depending on the, the appearances and how much of the kidney is involved in that process, really, along with a number of other factors. Um, so that, that on its own probably doesn't provide enough information to give you a clear idea on etiology. Um, so age is obviously a factor in understanding whether that was something genetic or not. And, you know, we know that 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 condition specifically, if it presents early, is much more likely to be genetically based. Um, but it's not impossible that there is a genetic cause for, for you, and I guess we'll talk a bit more about that. So over the course of that year, you were still trying to work, unable to work? I was at that point in the last part of what is equivalent to PGCE. Right. I was living in New Zealand at the time, studying, studying that with the hope of starting to work in an SEN uh, special needs setting. So I was determined, I was like, I don't want to drop out now, I'm nearly nearly yeah. at the end of it. So going through placements and things basically as I could. And then just as I started to have treatment for it, I then graduated as well. Okay. So it, okay. Was, it was a bit of a full on time, but yeah. there wasn't a lot that I could do rather than just try and continue as, as much as I could. And how did you feel? Were you like knackered or um, uh, what was it like? Difficult to tell really, I knew Obviously, there was something wrong with me. Yeah. But I think working in the type of setting I was in, I probably would have been knackered anyway. Yeah. So yeah. it's a bit difficult to tell how much of the tiredness and the feeling rubbish was down to yeah. the kidney disease. And you would be picking up colds and yeah. all kinds from the kids anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much probably the worst type of job I could possibly <laughs> yeah. have had for someone yeah. in that position. But there you go. And I guess it's really interesting with kidneys in particular. We often say that it's really hard being a nephrologist or doctors who work in, in with patients with kidney disease because a lot of it is so silent and you really don't notice a decline in mm. kidney function until it's got to quite significant levels, particularly in a case where it might have been developing quite chronically over a number of months or years. So, Yeah, I think that was the case for me. When I, I remember the first time I heard about what EGFR was, they mm. said it was 30. Yeah. So for me to think, oh... I've probably had this for a while yeah. and mm. not really known yeah, was yeah. a bit, you're correct, and saying that it's silent and mm. that it can sort of sneak up on you in a way. Well, we often have real difficulty persuading people to come to outpatient clinics recurrently because they don't really see that there's much that we're actually doing. Right. But actually the subtleties are what we're looking for. But it's difficult for patients often when they don't feel ill to feel that they need yeah. to... Like you don't go to the dentist unless you've got exactly. toothache sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. So for kidney medicine, that's a real challenge. Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, I am by nature quite an anxious person anyway. So I think when I heard, you know, you've got a chronic illness, this is quite serious. I was like, okay, I'll go to clinic. Yeah. <laughs> and then I was living with my parents as well while I was studying. So that added a whole new dynamic to... I guess my experience factoring in their reaction to suddenly being told there's something seriously wrong with your with your child. Yeah. Yeah. And you touched on the the measurement that you used to define how well your kidneys were functioning. So you used the the term EGFR. Yes. 
and that from our perspective is it, it stands for glomerular filtration mm. rate or an estimate of how well your kidney is actually doing the blood cleaning um, and you said your your level was 30 which sort of equates to about 30 yeah. percent of what we would consider to be normal kidney function so that's at the level at which you'd start to expect to see some symptoms usually what you're talking about is sort of reminded me of um andrew cole um when he came here and spoke about his um nephrotic syndrome he said he was absolutely fine um you know and he's quite busy i think he's got like several roles as like ambassador for manchester yeah. united and he flies all over the place i think he said he was in singapore or somewhere um felt knackered mm. you know felt rubbish but just put it to jet lag, dehydration, mm. flying around really busy. He went home and sort of thought he'd have a few days, you know, getting over it, drinking lots of water. Just felt terrible. Went to hospital and they were like, mate, your kidneys are on your knees. I don't know how. So it sounds really similar, you know, that your EGFR was down to 30. And yet you were able to sort of soldier on. Mm. Yeah, I think. And looking back now, I'm like, I don't know how I got through that, yeah. you know end of my course and starting to work full time in that environment no that's insane and I think you just kind of do it almost by adrenaline and almost mm. by stubborn will mm. in my case as well and obviously having other people encouraging me as well saying you can you actually can do it if you need time off it's fine if you need a medical note it's fine but if you, it's important to me to try and continue with my normality yeah yeah just for then you, yeah. we will back you up yeah yeah so how did things progress from there? Like if they say, okay, we think you've got FSGS, like what, what did they do that about it? That was diagnosed by a couple of biopsies, still in New Zealand at the time, and then eventually treatment with rituximab and high-dose prednisone. Um, went through a bit of an interesting period to get the rituximab, had to go before a panel and everything to be approved to be treated with that instead of um, cyclophosphamide right but long story short I had that and that was successful and I remember my consultant at that stage saying you're pretty much as healthy as you're ever going to be you should go and continue to you know live your life right we don't know how long you'll stay you know kind of in remission for it might be 20 years it might be six months but don't waste the time that you've got Right. And by that, which sounds it's a bit, a bit bleak. it sounds a bit bleak <laughs> now that I've put it like that. But for me at the time, it wasn't. Right. For me at the time, it was actually really kind of really liberating because before I'd done, before I'd been through this, I had made up my mind that once I'd graduated and, you know, got a bit of work experience in New Zealand under my belt, I would move over here mm -hmm. to travel and teach and get a bit of experience teaching in the UK. Um, and that was something that was still very important to me to be able to come and do. So to have that consultant say to me, this is, you know, good health for you. Mm. We encourage you to actually still go and do it. Mm. I was like... That's good, yeah. Rather oh. than saying, like, don't go anywhere. No, of, no. Yeah. I think, obviously, he said you have to make a contingency plan. Right. You have to think ahead. If X was to happen, you would do Y, then you know, you would have to plan for it. But for him to say your whole life doesn't have to just grind to a halt because yeah. of this, that was the first time really where I thought, oh, I can actually do stuff still. That's cool. 
And Holly, could I just ask, with the FSGS, was there ever a feeling that they understood where that had arisen from or was it felt to be the primary disease for you? Um, I'm not sure. At the time, looking back now, I'm kind of like, I wish I'd asked them (laughs) all of these things (laughs) because that's the type of person and the type of patient that I am now. But at the time when I was, you know, 24, 25, blindsided by it, feeling completely rubbish... I was like, I don't care where it's come from. Just get yeah. rid of it. Well, I think you probably had enough to take. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, that's really interesting. Well, as an interesting aside as well, what is the healthcare system like in New Zealand? Is it is it similar to ours or a bit more insurance based? Or I get asked this question a lot, and I say that it's quite difficult to compare because the treatment that I've had in New Zealand and the treatment that I've had here is quite different. Like I never had to contemplate dialysis or a transplant in New Zealand. It was very much kind of initial treatment, but ultimately there is a reciprocal healthcare agreement, which is basically why I'm here and why I'm still here because I'm covered under it as the same as you would be if you were me and wanted to go to New Zealand to work and do everything so that it is equivalent. I would say mostly, mostly equal. Yeah. Yeah. So people don't, you don't pay in New Zealand, no, it's all no. part of your tax system. Yes. you can have private health insurance, yeah. but in for the type of treatment that I had, you wouldn't have. I wouldn't have seen a private nephrologist. It wouldn't have been um, appropriate. Yeah, cool, cool. So that was it, then. You were sort of given your license to move around. Kind of, yeah. I mean, when you said before that it sounded bleak for him to say this is as healthy as you're ever going to be. I guess it did in one hand. But at the same time, I was sort of so motivated to continue with this thing that I'd really wanted to do that I thought, great, cool, yes, we'll make some plans. Obviously, I might need dialysis and a transplant and whatever else in the future, but I didn't want to sort of live in fear of that because I didn't want to waste the, I guess, the window of good health that I had. Yeah, I guess it probably shows Caroline and I's glass half empty type I've been a glass half empty <laughs> person at, at times yeah that's for sure and did, did you feel better after your initial treatment did it make a difference to those feelings of you know being a bit run down um the treatment itself made me feel the worst I've ever felt oh, in my life mm. primarily I think that was due to the huge doses of prednisone that yeah, I was yeah. on right. yeah. and as I'm sure you realize the significant side effects of mm. prednisone so that's um, a steroid, is that's it? That's a yeah, steroid. Yeah. Um, huge, huge amounts of weight. Hmm. Up at three o'clock in the morning, cleaning my wardrobe because I couldn't sleep. It's um, so variable. Yeah. Isn't it? What steroids do to people? Some people feel totally unaffected. Yeah. Other people have huge. You know, mood is something hmm. I hear it talked about a lot. I mean, I sleep. I wouldn't say that it really. It certainly affected my sleep, but I wouldn't say that it really affected my mood that much at least not in terms of you know significant mood swings or hallucinations or you know really significant wow, personality. You get hallucinations oh, wow, really yeah, significant personality God. changes like mm. some of my friends have experienced so i think i was quite lucky in that regard yeah i've had i've, I've known people who've become really a uh, really aggressive mm. with with, wow. with prednisone treatment or seen that in their children yeah anyway. they're like roid rage yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. this is th- this is exactly why we do the podcast because i I'm thinking, oh, great, you responded to steroids. That means, you know, this, this, and this. That's good. Yes, but... Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. You're <laughs> yeah. exactly right. That's exactly what this is about because mm-hmm. I I only really get to see um, 
you know, generally speaking, patients to me might be in a paper as a, as a, as a number mm. and what their clinical course was. That's probably the most interaction I would normally have with patients. So to hear, yeah, great, it improved my kidney function and let me do this. But I mean, yeah, you must have had a clean wardrobe. That's probably another <laughs> tick. That my make... parents had a clean entire house. <laughs> I think they were happy, but they also wondered... What what the hell? <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't push it too much though, would you? You'd be like, I am concerned, but not concerned enough for this to stop. No. <laughs> no, it can be so burdensome, these treatments. And I think that's why we spend such a lot of time mm. exploring steroid sparing therapies mm. you know, so that we can minimize that for people who, mm. particularly for people who experience the side effects that you've described. Yeah. Because then it just becomes a battle of, you know, it, it, compliance with treatment is such a problem in, if you're going to experience yeah, horrible side effects. Hmm. You know? So would we say that Holly's condition was steroid responsive then? If we were, a- if you're able to control kidney function by the steroids, Depend- was that something that was mentioned? Yeah, I, I just don't know exactly when you talked about your initial presentation, um, did, were you, did you have nephrotic syndrome at the time that you presented so do you remember if you were leaking a lot of protein or and very swollen yes I was I know I had a lot of protein in my urine yeah and I can't remember exactly how much I'm sure they told me at the time but I don't remember offhand and presumably that was part of the reason that they did the biopsy originally that you had really low kidney function but also the protein leak um and um you were relatively young for that to obviously Mm. be happening for from any other cause so um so then the biopsy. So yes, if you then had a period where your protein loss stabilized mm. and your numbers improved, then that would be a steroid response. Yeah. You know. So you're sort of looking to see if the albuminuria comes down mm. and if you improve the EGFR mm. a little bit or certainly stop it from getting worse. Yeah. Yeah. Patient quite happy with that apart from side effects? Um, I guess it gave you the freedom to come here. It did, it did, you're right. And I mean, as... As even though, even though I've just said as horrendous as the steroid treatment was at the time, if I had to go through it again, I think I probably would. Right. Yeah. Because of the time that it gave, mm. it gave me, mm. and I mean, I guess maybe it's perhaps easy for me to say that now with the benefit of hindsight and a lot more, you know, I guess a fuller perspective of the bigger picture. But no, it gave me the freedom to move over here and sort of establish myself yeah so how did how did that go then so you came did you get a teaching job here I I did I came over in August 2013 um moved to Lancashire of all random places just because I had a friend that lived there who wanted a housemate at the time and thought I don't want to be in London surrounded by more people than the whole of New Zealand yeah yeah yeah. and you needed the (laughs) Um, Lake District to sort of remind you I did you're right it does remind me of home So established myself and thought, actually, I quite like the UK. And then after I'd been here two months, I relapsed. Oh, that quickly. Um, Obviously not what I expected to happen. Not what I hoped would happen. But such is life. And just for the listeners, just to talk about what that means from your perspective, the relapse. Oh, sorry. Yeah, my my FSGS, unfortunately, it recurred. Mm -hmm. And I very frequent very rapidly i very quickly became reacquainted with the nephrology department of my local hospital 
And how did you know that was happening? Did you swell up again and when, feel unwell? Or? When I came, I obviously knew that I was going to need to be supervised by a nephrologist mm -hmm. in whichever centre I chose to move to because my condition needed to be mm. have ongoing monitoring. And was that managed well? Was that a fairly easy process? Or? Yes, it was. I am very lucky that um, Royal Preston Hospital is obviously a large teaching hospital with a pretty big renal unit and everything. And um, even though I didn't expect it to happen, it sort of was a bit of a shock to the system. And I remember when I told my parents and family that it had happened, everybody's immediate reaction was, oh, you have to come back again, you know, home to New Zealand. Hmm. And I weighed it up and I thought, well, I'm here now. I've made all this effort to to come. I don't just want to rush back again because hmm. it's almost like, I don't know, almost like, I want to say giving up, but maybe that's not quite quite the right way to put it. I I'm guess not you sure. didn't want to be dictated I didn't want to. Be, to yeah, no, that's right. Illness, I didn't want to be yeah. dictated to by my illness. So they did another biopsy, obviously, just to confirm mm. what they thought was the case and then treated me again with the steroids. And that put me back into, I say, remission again, but unfortunately not for quite, not for quite as long. Um, and wh how long after the initial treatment course was your relapse? You'd had your rituximab. Uh, I had had my rituximab in New Zealand. I think it was, sorry, I'm now trying to count mm. months in my head. Uh, just over a year, okay. between a year and 18 months. So not, not as long as we hoped for, mm. but I'm so grateful for that period of time that mm. I got because I think I managed to achieve quite a bit well, yeah. in, that, in yeah. that time to kind of say, right, I'm going to go for it and yeah. sort of crack on with life while I, yeah. while I can. And so I don't know any of this stuff. So rituximab, mm -hmm. is that something you sort of have a burst of and then you're not taking it in the interim and just hoping that you're fine or are you on it all the time? I, when I initially had it in New Zealand, I had a course of three infusions. Right. So I would go into like a day case unit and sit and have it via an IV. Mm -hmm. And then I think I would have it, I think it was every week or every fortnight. Okay. And then I would take uh, 60 milligrams of prednisone every day. So even, that, even that's quite a burden, mm. really. Yeah, I mean, the rituximab is usually given over, yeah, two or, yeah. as you said, maybe in adult practice, three, but we tend to give it in two bursts of doses. And then the, the effect can last, mm. you know, upwards of a year, 18 months, yeah. depending on your individual response. And it's a, it's an agent that's used to get rid of your circulating mm. B cells, so one of the immune components. And it works very specifically on B cells. Mm. I remember my consultant describing it as like Pac-Man exactly. that goes around exactly. and it's like, oh, I'm going to eat that yeah. one. <laughs> you, you intermittently check people's levels for for, for these B cells having returned and being seen to be active again. And, and you can use that as a guide as to maybe when to use the rituximab for a second go. Mm. So you can recurrently dose it, but the intervals will be determined by the individual's response and their, their B cell response. And whether they're suppressed or or reactive or reactivated um and like you said it sounds as if you had maybe up to 18 months where you had a remission that was potentially induced by that rituximab treatment and are we wanting just to sort of bring the number of b cells down but not get rid of them completely yeah i mean you know it, it, it it's difficult to quantify that yeah. but essentially it suppresses them um by through oh, i don't know whether i yeah, it, it suppresses your B cells to a level that you hope that the disease is controlled. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
but yeah. they're not complete. We're getting into real grey areas yeah. of research and I'm mechanism thinking, there. Oh, but I didn't know all of that. <laughs> no, um, none of us know any of that. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, we'll probably scare away from those grey areas of research. <laughs> um, it, you know, it's not as if someone in the room's whole research project is about circulating factor <laughs> in the flight syndrome. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you wiped up B cells completely, um, you know, you, you're quite significant oh, immunosuppressive yeah. risk and your risk of other infections mm. and, that, and that can be more troublesome than yeah. the actual disease process itself so it's all a bit of a balancing mm. yeah balancing act with um with these therapies and that's the thing isn't it there's a lot of things we could do and it's like what well, solves this problem but it causes four exactly. more that are worse exactly. so and you know immune suppression is such a big deal for the pa- for you you know you have to then be so alert mm. to feverish illnesses and and the the risk of serious bacterial infection you know so particularly whilst i was still determined to try and teach as much as i could in an sen mm. setting as well yeah. it's sort of yeah. i've picked the worst possible career yeah well <laughs> i mean my my wife worked in sen schools mm. for about 4 or 5 years mm. i mean i got ill a mm. lot from her bringing home the most horrific colds yeah. and I just suffer with them more than she does. Do you I find it was always in the school holidays? Yes. <laughs> yeah, my wife always says like, she has this whole theory about when she relaxes. Yeah. She'd be like, it's a totally oh, it's because I got, re- is it a thing? Because I say it's not a thing. thing. It is, is it a thing? thing. <laughs> it's definitely a stress mediated, you okay. know, a stress release. Go on holiday and you get ill. I have to make sure times. she doesn't listen to this episode because <laughs> every time she knows, I'm like, oh, it's because I'm relaxed. I'm like, that's not a thing. Okay, maybe it is a thing then. <laughs> if you guys say it's a thing, I'll believe it's a thing. Definitely a thing. So, <laughs> so how quickly, so you're then under the NHS in Lancashire and a second sort of round of yes. rituximab. Yeah and prednisone yes. and hoping that obviously hoping get... for another 12 to 18 months and yeah. then they're like well it worked last time we might yeah try it again mm. and i thought okay still sort of a bit shell-shocked to have to deal with it all again after having just moved mm. you know to a whole new life um and how was or... that with work because i sort of um you know it's always a terrible feeling if you start a new job and then you're like genuinely sick quite early doors and then you're thinking I don't want I don't like it's not too bad if you've just got a cold or whatever you can sort of push through because you don't want to be that guy you don't want to be like saying you're sick obviously Mm. for you it's not the sort of thing you can just not tell them about did you how did you feel about that and how how did they handle it at that time I wasn't only working in one set school I was doing supply teaching and that was was working via an agency right and that was because I wanted to sort of get a feel for which schools in the area might be suitable for me and um you know sort of dip my toe in it so I was very lucky in that in that sense that because I worked for an agency kind of on an ad hoc basis I could say to them I'm ill at the moment. I'm undergoing unexpected medical treatment. I will just be unavailable for work between X and Y dates. Mm. And they, to their credit, dealt with that pretty well. Mm. I can't remember exactly what I told them, but I said, I think I said I have kidney disease and I need to mm. have some treatment for it. And they yeah. just said, okay, that's fine. Yeah. Oh, no, I totally know it would be fair enough. Yeah. It's just that sort of yeah, that feeling, feeling in yeah. yourself. Yeah, letting people I've down. I've had to deal with that know, as well in other on. jobs. And it's, I mean, I'll chat about it a bit later but it's certainly very 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 difficult Mm. particularly in terms of having to make a decision over how much you tell them when you tell them because obviously you want them to understand that it's serious and genuine yeah but at the same time you don't want them to think that you're unreliable or you're maybe fabricating it or trying it on or you know 
it's really, really challenging. Yeah. And that goes back to the whole invisibility of kidney oh, disease. Absolutely. It's not something you can see. Yeah. Or that's obvious, you know, with liver disease, you go mm. yellow and people yeah. think you don't look, you know, don't look right. Yeah. Um, but there's not, there's not the same visibility with, yeah. with And at least then they can see when you're trying, like when you're mm. really, yeah. the, you know, the amount of times you go in and you're really pushing yourself. You're like, you know, you, they don't know necessarily the amount of times you're like, mm. I've really been on the edge yeah. of calling in sick and I've, I've yeah. pushed yeah, yeah, on, yeah. I've pushed myself to the max. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we should get some sort of like, I don't know, I want to say like, a sticker that changes colour depending <laughs> on how you're feeling, so they know you're having a like rough day kidney wise. You almost still... need exactly. You need to have your your GFR that you were talking about written, yeah. written <laughs> on, near you to say this is what I'm doing. So at least with. your boss could be like twenty. You need to go <laughs> yeah, home. He's go. <laughs> um, so, so I'm assuming um, that the second round didn't really work so well it, either it didn't work as well as the first round right and my kidney function sort of started to slowly decline mm. and then it was sort of discussions about oh you will need dialysis at some point in the future right you will when your egfr reaches a certain point i think 15 for mm. i think they said to me three consecutive blood tests then they will look at assessing you for transplant and activating you on the list and everything right um so i sort of was like oh okay um but and that was really difficult because it was almost a case of waiting for the other shoe to drop yeah like knowing okay the treatment hasn't worked as well as we hoped it would obviously you're gonna i'm gonna need to have dialysis and you know be really really ill at some point so you're sort of bad but not bad enough yeah, yeah yeah but you don't know when it could be in a week it could be in three years yeah. And how frequently were you having your these assessments, your blood tests, were they very close together? At or? that point, I think I was having blood tests about every month to mm. six weeks. So they were monitoring me quite closely and obviously saying, if you're at all unwell in between, mm. please let us know straight away. Mm. And did you feel physically much worse at that point than you had done before? Was it noticeable that you'd had this decline in your kidney function or was that... Were you sort of used to a level of feeling not great? I think stage? I did notice that I was declining, but I think in cases like this, it's almost like you know how they say about boiling a frog. Yeah, how it yeah. happens. No. It happens so slowly. You put a frog in boiling water. Sorry, yeah. this is horrendous. Yeah, don't <laughs> never heard of this. Don't try, don't try this at home, kids. But it is quite interesting. And then it heats up so slowly that you don't. You don't know. I didn't yeah. notice my kidney function done. deteriorating. Yeah. <laughs> if you if you throw a frog into <laughs> boiling water, it'll get out. But if you put it in and boil it, it won't. <laughs> I don't Why know. have I brought this up? I don't know. Just love that I don't know if that's been published. Today. I don't know if they got ethics for it. Doesn't sound like. <laughs> but apparently it's true. But let's just take their word for that. But yeah, I get what you're saying. That it's yeah. just like a. It was a slow accumulation. Yeah, yeah. I think I would have noticed it more if I'd suddenly gone within, you know, the period of a week mm. or two weeks to suddenly I was fine to yeah. in hospital. Yeah. Mm. But for me, because I had kind of got used to it anyway and then some of it was sort of anticipated, mm. I put the feeling a bit rubbish down to just working full time and mm. trying to adjust to everything that suddenly was part of my life over here. So it was difficult to say how much of the tiredness is accredited to what. 
And were you really, did you sort of dread every blood test? Yes. Because I always <laughs> wonder about people's anticipation of blood tests. Oh. Because we, you know, we, we set these parameters that can be slightly arbitrary in terms of time frame. So, you know, come back in a week, come back in a month, we'll do your bloods. And don't really consider it. it how long that feels for the patient or what that feels like to be waiting on that next test, which could mean that then you're starting dialysis and transplant workup, which is obviously a hugely significant thing. Yes, absolutely. I got to the point where I absolutely dreaded going for bloods. I absolutely dreaded going to clinic. Mm. I dreaded opening patient view on my phone because I wanted to know, but Mm. I didn't Didn't want to know. So yeah, so I read this on your on your yeah. blog actually. What is patient life? Because I've never uh, patient, patient view, view. Sorry, never. Essentially, never heard it. it is a website and an app where you can register through your hospital, and then they will upload all of your blood test results to a portal, where you can log on with your own details and then see the results of those. So you don't have to necessarily wait for your next clinic to know what your latest blogs are. Right. Now, post-transplant, I find it very useful. Right. But when I was in that mm. kind of quite unstable period where I knew I was I knew I was going to get worse, but I didn't know when and how quickly, it certainly, it reached the point where I just didn't use it yeah. anymore. And yeah. I said to my consultant and the Kidney Choices team, it's, it's making my mental health worse. It's yeah. not useful for me. That's a really interesting yeah. um, insight, actually, for me. I mean, we have... I, I very rarely hear negatives about patient view because usually the people who want to use it are other people who like to know. But I can, I, I yeah. love this perspective. It's actually really interesting because um, it is an unusual thing for a patient to be able to see the intricate details of, of disease progression, you know, mm. it, particularly when you don't necessarily understand the relevance of all the figures that you're looking at. And outside of a context, they can be quite hard to interpret. So I think it's it's a bit of a mixed blessing. Yeah, and I mean, as I say, every patient is individual. Everybody has their own take mm. on whether or not they prefer to use it, mm. whether they whether they want to know, whether they mm. don't want to know. So I can't speak for everybody, but I certainly know that for myself at that point in my in my circumstances, it mm. wasn't mm. beneficial to me at all. I totally empathise with what you're saying, though, because I think I'd be broadly similar in that I I would. I would want to know the details, mm. but that sort of anxiety and the build-up mm. to knowing when it's going to be there, and you know, it, just that mental load of you know, you're waiting to have the test, then you're waiting for the results. Yeah. And by the time those results are come, you're definitely waiting for the next test, mm. and it's just this constant convey about, yeah. I imagine, of the next mm. dread yeah. and just and there dread, wasn't dread, anything dread. that I could do. No. So even if I had logged in to yeah. see that my EGFR had declined or whatever, it was like, well, great. Yeah, what you That's do not very it? good. Yeah. What can I do? Yeah. Mm. So I sort of, I guess, just wanted to sort of bury my head in the sand between clinic yeah. appointments. It was like, okay, I've had clinic. Yes, I've got slightly worse or I've stayed the same, yeah. but I don't have to think about it again for another six yeah. weeks. Mm. Obviously, I did in between, but, you know, that was just, ha- that was my coping strategy. Well, I don't blame the time. you. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you can't, if there's nothing you can do to affect it. Mm probably the best strategy is to try and just, bur- you know, bury your hand mm. in the sand, as you say. Um, so your kidney function over this time on patient view, yes. was it declining? Yes. Like, yeah. It was declining, and I was eventually activated on the transplant list in 2015, I think it was. And so was that a relief 
to be on the list um, or do you know what I mean because if you know your kidney's yeah. getting I mean I have no idea I don't want to put words in your mouth it kind of was and kind of wasn't I think I obviously knew that it was coming mm. because I had to have all the you know workup tests to check that I was fit and that I was mentally capable of dealing with all the um psychological implications yeah. of it which is another whole kettle of fish mm. um but I knew obviously it was going to happen to me at some point but I think and it's really strange because even though I'd already had all the experiences that I'd already that I'd been through already that was the point where I realized I'm actually really ill mm. and I don't know why but I guess it was kind of a bit of a a bit of a landmark really it's like right I'm actively waiting for the call mm. that could come at any point at two o'clock in the morning or at lunchtime when I'm at school when I think it's the most know. intense thing to imagine someone going through actually I just I always find it it's really really feels. strange yeah. and I think I mean there's nothing that can ever really prepare you to go through a kidney transplant or I suppose any organ transplant until you've until you've experienced it because there's just there's no way to know exactly how it's going to go for you mm. because yeah. I know so many other patients and no two of us have the same the mm. same story and the same experience so how long was you on the list for before you got I was the very call? lucky I was on the list for just over a year right I got the call on the 8th of October 2016 and prior to that I had been on PD. Right. I was also extremely lucky in that I only spent two months on PD. Yeah. Which always tends to raise people's eyebrows when I say that because I appreciate that it's an extremely short period of time. Mm. I I think I I almost got a preemptive transplant, which is of course what they hoped for, but Right. But no. Okay. So we should say PD is peritoneal oh, dialysis. Yeah, yeah. Um I, that's all about, that's about this <laughs> from my knowledge. It's a means of using the membrane that lines your internal organs as a, as, a, as a way of removing waste products from the body. So effectively a replacement kidney. So you, you instill fluid into the, in, into the abdomen and um, the waste products get filtered by the blood vessels that run in your peritoneum. Um, and it's really effective for people who don't want to be tied to mm. hemodialysis in centre. Um, can give you a lot more freedom um, to do the things that you want to do rather than having to be reliant on sitting on mm. hemodialysis. So for is it three, is it quicker? Hours. No, it's it, well, it depends on the way that you do it, but generally it's a sort of twenty-four hour therapy or a nighttime therapy. Yeah. Um, so it's not quicker, but well, it's it, it's not it, it's not done in. Um, small aliquots it's done over an extended period but it fits around people's lifestyles yeah. often better than right. hemodialysis yes, that's why i chose it i chose to do it overnight mm. rather than have to go in and do it in center hemodialysis like mm. you've just explained but specifically for that reason that i wanted to try and have you know as least disruption to my mm. life as so i possibly you, could. you could do this at home yes i could i had to undergo obviously training yeah which was which took place at the home therapy training unit in Chorley. Um, I think it took me about four days. Wow. And even though I, I remember before I went to it, I thought, how on earth am I going to remember all of this? This is like technical <laughs> stuff. This is not going to go very well. Yeah. But after I left the first day, I suddenly thought, oh, this isn't at all like I 
was worried it could be. Yes, it's involved, and yes, you have to remember to do everything the way that you should for your own safety and hygiene and everything. But I realised it actually was. There was no reason why I couldn't learn to do it with support, obviously. Yeah. But I how did you feel the support was there? And yes, it was definitely. Well I felt like they. I felt like I had excellent backup from my unit and also from the helpline. So if I had a problem with the PD machine at three o'clock in the morning, mm. I knew I should just phone this number and tell them the machine's saying such and such an error code. What do I do? <laughs> and was this is so, this every night then or Yes, I yeah. did it every night. Yeah. Wow. That yeah. that that's intense. It was, but it was I mean, I always say that compared to what I would have faced if I'd chosen to do a hemodialysis in a unit. It wasn't intense at yeah, all. Yeah, so you could it maintain very, your lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once I got used to having, you know, a bedroom full of boxes of medical equipment yeah. and everything. People always say that, that it's the space that the stuff yeah. takes up. So yeah. before you're deemed suitable to have mm. peritoneal dialysis, you have to be... It, it has to be seen that you've got the appropriate environment to do that in. So yeah. usually there'll be some sort of home visit yeah. where the people setting up the dialysis yeah, the make make it clear that, that this space needs to be allocated for the machine and yeah. you know that you've got enough practical ability to do to do it within your environment. Yeah. No, the nurses came to my house and looked at my bedroom and thought, yeah. okay, this is this is the setup of it. This is where you can sort store things. You have to shift your bed to face in a different direction to mm. fit the machine so that it's in the right place and everything. And then looked at the street outside to make sure I had enough room for a delivery truck to come and wow. everything. Yeah. They they genuinely thought of everything. I was like, wow. Wow. And you've got to have somewhere to store all those yes. bags of fluid. Yes. These huge bags of fluid that um, mm. contain all the... But um, no, I ended up having to have my deliveries coming fortnightly instead of monthly because of obviously limited space. I don't know what my neighbours thought was going on (laughs) with this unmarked white van with a (laughs) pallet-sized pile of boxes every two weeks. Breaking (laughs) that. No, I don't know what they thought, but I wish I did. (laughs) Holly, did you ever have the option of having home hemodialysis? It was mentioned, but I... I kind of knew that I wanted to do PD. Yeah. I mean, it was a discussion yeah. that I had of... They knew I obviously wouldn't want to do in-centre hemodialysis because of the imposition on my mm. life. And then, so it was sort of a choice between home hemodialysis and PD, and I thought, I'll go for PD. Mm. <laughs> I don't remember exactly how I made that decision, but I think, looking back now, I think it was probably the right one for me at that time. So what are the pros and cons to each? They, they give you the option. Yes, they do. Right. I had I was very lucky in that I had, because I had such a slow period of decline before I started dialysis, I had quite a while to make a decision, which I say now I was lucky. At the time, I didn't feel lucky mm. because it was like waiting for doom. Yeah. But I had time to build up a very good relationship with the kidney choices nurses at the hospital. They got to know me very well. They got to know kind of what mattered to me what was important for me in my life outside of the hospital to sort of be able to guide me to make the best decision for myself at the time. And that I think that is absolutely vital. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, you, you can start with one modality and yes. feel that you're not getting on well with it and mm. switch. You know, yeah. it's not something that you have yeah. to say, this is the only way I'm ever going to be dialyzed. Yeah. There's always there's always an element of choice mm. um, and sometimes necessity of switching yeah. modalities. You know, I don't know whether you had problems with your PD or got peritonitis or was there, did you ever have anything like no, that No, I didn't. As I said, I was only on it for two months in the well, of end. Course, yeah. But so. obviously they told me about peritonitis and did say to me that PD may or may not turn out to mm. suit me once I started it and it may be the case that I had to swap to hemodialysis mm. but I think part of the reason that I didn't want hemodialysis initially was because of the fact that I would have to have a fistula yeah. to obviously have access to do it and a line initially as well and at the time I wanted to still carry on my job working obviously in an SEN setting and thought how safe is that for me yeah. to have a line or to have a fistula yeah. when some of my students don't have the mental ability mm. to appreciate that they can't, you know, be, yeah. physic be physical yeah. with me. Yeah. So that, you know, was a choice that I made for my set lifestyle. Yeah. And by line, it, uh, um, Holly's talking yes. about having a big catheter that you can do dialysis mm -hmm. through in one of the main yes. blood vessels. Um, often up near the neck area. So. so certainly something you don't want no, a kid yeah. tugging on. No. Yeah. Health and safety. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that was something that we discussed as well. And I thought, okay, my job is important to me. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, is this in my best interest? Is this safe? <laughs> yeah. And yeah, we have a lot of kids that we yeah. look after who have lines and they go to school and they do all normal yeah. things and it can be managed. Yeah. It's just, oh, absolutely. You know, if you've got yeah. choice over it and you're in a setting where you're worried that it presents. Yeah. If you're going to be self-conscious and, you know, and yeah, sort of worried about it all the time, yeah, then it's, yeah. And I guess, like you said, it was just the right decision for yeah. you at the time yeah. that that was going to work better. Because obviously you still have a catheter with your yes. PD, but it's just a bit less accessible. Mm. To, um, so what was what was the phone call like? <laughs> <laughs> I When I got the call, I was actually at the annual patients conference for the NKF, which is the National Kidney Federation. Okay. So, so I... a good supportive group around <laughs> you then. Hopefully. I was up in Blackpool at the time at the Hilton and it was, you know, the first night of the conference and after dinner some friends and I had gone out for a walk to go and see um, the illuminations and after we'd walked we sort of called in somewhere for a drink and then I thought, oh, I should just check my phone to see what the time it is. And I looked and there were 18 missed calls <laughs> 18. and oh 18 God. missed messages. Oh no. oh no. And I just knew. Oh. straight away did you panic then can you miss it you can miss it but fortunately i did not miss yeah. it I... sorry to add that level of retrospective <laughs> panic one of the ways that you're prepared for transplant is to ensure that there's a very consistent way of contacting right. people families you know if you're a family that is not going to answer your phone at the vital time you're likely to not yeah. be, be easily able to be listed <laughs> you know that's one of the prerequisites yes. that you have to be contactable i think that i mean it's funny now it certainly wasn't funny at the time. No, no, I can't. No. Um, I immediately said some words that possibly aren't repeatable on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> ran outside and phoned the transplant coordinator back. Well, phoned my housemate in Preston who had been trying to get hold of me. She, by that point, had phoned the hotel that I was staying in, who had oh, gone to look for me in my room, gone to look for me in the bar, gone to look for me in the gym. Clearly, they didn't know who they were looking for. <laughs> um, and 
had double locked my door, which was very clever of them, so that when I got back to my room, I would have to go down to reception uh, okay. oh, to say clever. I can't get into my room. But uh, long story short, I did eventually make it to MRI several hours before my kidney did. So all was well that ended well. But for any people on the list who are waiting for the call, don't do what I did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's amazing. And how, so is it, is it an exciting time, scary um, time? It was really strange because I, I always thought that I would be one of those people that would just go into panic mode and not know what to do. But I didn't. And I think perhaps that helped the environment that I was in, where the friends that I was with, um, two out of three of them are transplant recipients already who had been through it already. So they very much knew, okay, this is serious. We need to go back to the hotel. We need to pack. We need to tell reception that, you know, I am Holly Loughton and I've got this message and I'm on the way to the hospital and everything. And then I said, please don't post anything on social media or on Facebook or anything because obviously my parents and all the rest of my family are still in New Zealand and I at that point was well aware that some people do get the calls that then don't end and them getting a transplant mm. for whatever reason so yeah, I didn't so want important. obviously them to yeah, panic so yeah and you know for nothing, being on the other side of the world and not be able to do anything yeah God, that's an interesting take on social media and how, yeah. how you know you can ad- you can totally imagine that your parents see that on social yeah. media and you haven't had a chance to have yes, a conversation Yes, I did yeah. not want that to That's happen. Nice. And that was something that I kind of had... I hadn't discussed it with them, but I'd sort of got it clear in my own mind mm. that that was how I wanted to deal with it, just mm. to sort of minimise, yeah. I suppose, panic. Yeah. And and everything like that. Yeah, I, to- I totally understand that. Yeah, you, you know, if... if if it is going to end up that yeah. it doesn't go ahead, at least it's only been sort of your yeah, hopes that yeah, are dashed. Yeah, yeah. No, I, to- I totally get that. So, so I mean, that just speaks to the how important these sort of patient groups yes. are. That, I mean, even if you hadn't have been lucky enough to be there with yeah. them, they would have only been a phone call Absolutely, away. Absolutely, yeah. Yes. That's awesome. It is. It's amazing. Um, as it turned out, the secret got out at the NKF ah. on social media anyway. Oh, really? I'm not quite sure how or who was responsible, but I remember waking up after my transplant to more messages and texts and missed calls and everything than I'd ever seen before in oh, my wow. life. Oh, my God. So people obviously did know. Was that um, upsetting? No, it was it was fine because by that point, obviously when I was on my way down to surgery, I said to the friend of mine in the UK who acts as my, you know, next of kin here, please ring my family and tell them what's happened. Yeah. And that if they want to ring the hospital, this is the phone number to ring. So I said, by that point, I thought, okay, it is going ahead. I probably should tell my parents <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at some stage. Yeah, but it's quite hard, isn't um, it? Because you're sort of like, is it happening? Is it happening? Is it happening? There are these ties of me. <laughs> yeah, it, it was hard. But I think in hindsight, I, we did deal with it the best way that we could yeah. have. Yeah. Holly, did you ever have, um, was there any ever talk of you having a, uh, kidney donated to you by friends, family, that sort of, um, did you go through that briefly, process? Or? yes. But I'm adopted, which means oh, yes, that neither that, of, of my parents are a genetic match. Mm-hmm. And for their own personal and health-related reasons, mm-hmm. neither of them were suitable anyway as a live unrelated donor. Mm-hmm. So, no, a kidney from a live donor wasn't, wasn't, wasn't a possibility for me, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, are we okay to touch on the implications of having a donor like a deceased yes, donor yes absolutely 
Yeah, so it's a tricky sort of subject, I guess. Uh, what were your feelings around that? Um, I remember being in the hospital at 3am on my own, which I knew I was going to be because obviously... I come to the, I came to the UK on my own, and I'd kind of got I'd come to terms with that, and I'd obviously had I was very lucky that I had psychological support and emotional support from a psychologist and people at my unit to kind of help me get my head around that, and I thought okay, somewhere else in the UK is another family that's going through possibly the hardest thing that they ever have, and this is you know, amazing day for me, but not so much for them mm. so I very much was thinking of my donor and their family at that point mm. yeah I mean you know it's hard to put yourself put myself anywhere near any of these positions because it's so far removed from my mm. my experiences but I I don't know I'd imagine it was some sort of comfort to the donor's family um or you know I, I imagine that's how I'd feel if yes. if I were in a similar position yes I at least as a sort of silver lining is that a crass way of putting it I don't know I see myself as having been incredibly lucky since my transplant to have been privileged to correspond with my donor's family oh really which is amazing yeah it's it's put the whole thing into a completely different perspective oh wow on you know my life and their life and his life and I think it's an incredible gift that I've got and you know that really encourages me to be involved with a lot of what I've done and what I currently do to kind of not only make the most of my new life but to honor my donor's life as well yeah and the choice that he made and which his family supported I mean it's incredible really isn't it it's what I mean um I I think I've ticked all the right boxes and filled all the right paperwork and made it clear to my wife that if I died, they can take anything. I used to think I didn't want to give corneas because it felt a bit... Oh, I know, and lots of people say that. People are squeamish about it. I'm not sure why. Personally, it doesn't bother me. But I realise that organ donation is a very personal choice that every individual has to make based upon what is right for them. But I think that the most important thing, whether you opt in, whether you opt out, is to talk to your family members about Mm. it. Because at the end of the day, it's going to be them who are ultimately making the decision on what happens after you've passed away. And I think it makes it an awful lot easier for them if they know that they're making the decision that you would have wanted. Yeah, yeah. Holly, can I ask how it came to be that you had contact with your donor's family? Yes, I can. Initially, the contact that I had was via NHSBT, which Mm -hmm. is NHS Blood and Transplant, who were the sort of governing body who were Mm -hmm. responsible for organ donation and transplantation. And I think it was about seven months after my transplant that I wrote my first letter. And then... So you... Is that you instigating? I initially wrote a letter, yes. Either party, I say either party, either recipient or donor family can send the first letter. I think generally it tends to mostly be a recipient Mm. from what I know. And I've always known I wanted to write. It just seemed, I know some people really struggle with whether it's the right thing for them or not. But for me, that was, it just seemed like that was the right choice to sort of reach out to the people on the other side of all of this. Mm. So I wrote and I said, my name is Holly and in such and such a, month and year I was a recipient of one of your loved one's kidneys and I can't remember exactly what I said but I sent them a couple of photographs and other you know 
they say that it has to be non-identifying information, obviously, to protect my privacy and their privacy, and sent it off via my transplant coordinating nurse and thought, okay, I've done what I wanted to do. And was that for you to just, you just wanted to say thank you, Yes, I did. I wanted to, well, to say thank you and also to let them know that I wasn't just this nameless, faceless, 29-year-old female recipient, which is, I think, the only information that they are initially told via NHSBT. I wanted them to know that, you know, I'm actually a real person. Um, So that was really important to me. Mm. It's just, I'm I'm really trying to empathise, and you're doing a really good job at explaining it, but it's just so far removed from my... Life, yeah. that, you know, even as I think I'm understanding what you're saying, I'm sure that I'm just nowhere. It's just, it's just a really insane. I don't know. We were never designed or meant to experience just, this sort of thing. I yeah. think, I think that's really common. And I think if you'd asked me, you know, myself ten years ago, before any of this was part of my life, what would you do if you ever had an organ transplant? lots of interesting stuff to unpack there after the first episode um i think the really key bit for me was the confidence her clinicians in new zealand gave her to go ahead and carry on and do exactly what she planned to do anyway i think a lot of people in a similar situation wouldn't necessarily have had the bravery um, that holly had to do it but it's great that she received that encouragement from her clinical team in new zealand It's great as well that she's had brilliant experiences of the NHS and that her transition from being a patient in another country to being here went nice and smoothly and was nice and easy. It's nice that she received good psychological support, but we will be talking about that more in the second episode. And can you imagine that? Can you imagine pulling your phone out of your pocket and seeing 18 missed calls from a number presumably you know is about your kidney? just that fear I really sense that when Holly was talking about that that sort of panic Um, um, and to think that she went through all this with her family on the other side of the planet Um, honestly I really really take my heart to her so I hope you enjoyed the first episode of our interview with Holly and I do hope you join us for the second episode okay thanks for listening as ever please check out our Facebook page which is uh, the Keep It Renal podcast Um, it's a great forum for you to share ideas experiences Uh, give us a like give us a share spread us around uh, and the same can be said for our twitter account our handle is at keep it renal please keep in touch and get in touch if you have any burning questions for topics we should cover or, or just any feedback on what we've given you already thanks for taking the time to listen see you on the next one ta-ra